Thank you for joining us today. For you visitors, uh, I'm Jim Howard, one of the pastors at Dillon Community Church. Uh, come on up, Allison, because I have to help you understand our crowd. Okay? If you are, I want you to stand up if I call your state. If you're from Texas, oh, there's a few brave people. If you're from, stay standing, if you're from Mississippi, Alabama, any of those things that we call southern states from where we live, stay standing. If you're from the Midwest, Oklahoma, Nebraska, whatever those states are, I don't even know what they are, okay? Stay standing. If you're from one of the northern states, like Michigan or one of those places, okay? If you're from another country, yeah, that's you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, you know what the problem with these people are? Allison, get up here. You know what the problem with these people are? Where? You're going to have to help them. You speak their language. Okay. They're, they're sub-intelligent. Okay, now that's good. They're awake today. They are awake. Some Sundays are not. You know why they're sub-intelligent? Why? It's not because of where they come from. I travel all over the world. There's brilliant people everywhere. But this is not the brilliant people. Because they travel here. Then they decide to go home. Ah, Yes. They if they were brilliant, they would hang out here for the rest of time. They would memorial. figure out a way to hear God's voice <laughs> and be here. <laughs> That's good, Jim. I'm so That's glad good. you're here. Thank you. I am too. We I just, too. for those of you that listen to Backports Theology, we just were in Nashville all week recording, having a blast, weren't we? Absolutely. Okay, so now you're going to have to help her out. For some reason on Backports Theology, they call me Dr. Howard, and I'm trying to break her of that habit. So if she uses the term Dr. Howard, your job is to call out Jim. Shout me down. Let's hear it, Jim. Okay, they're going to help you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Howard. See you, Dr. Howard. <laughs> Let me pray for you, yeah. and then you're on. Wonderful. Father, thank you for my dear friend. Uh, just to be here with Allison, what a treat to bring her and her family back. Have Jonathan with us, leading us. And uh, Father, I pray that... Uh, I've already prayed you would soften our hearts, but give her wisdom and clarity today to say what she wants to say and to take us into your word. What a, we are blessed. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. amen. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Have Thank fun. you so much. Well, good morning, y'all. As you can tell, I hail from the land of sweet tea and y'all, Franklin, Tennessee, where, yes, we have any Franklinites in the house? Tennesseans in the house? A few? Well, in Tennessee, if you ask for unsweet tea at the table, that is like cussing at the dinner table, okay? And I always say when I have to encapsulate my story and drill it down to one sentence, it would sound something like this. Hey, y'all, my name is Allison Allen. I'm a 5'12 perimenopausal moth. That's a mother of a fifth grader, comma, whom Jesus Christ absolutely ruined for an ordinary existence over a quarter of a century ago. That's my story, y'all, and I'm sticking to that. Is that okay? <laughs> the other part of my story today is that that six foot tall, six foot, six foot four, where is he? There he is, Levite. We have been married almost 25 years. Um, before, when I was single, I asked the Lord for two things. I wanted a man that loved Jesus, and I wanted a man with whom I could wear heels, and hallelujah, I got both. <laughs> Woo-hoo, thank you, Lord. 
Well, it's so special for me to be here today. I have loved getting to know Jim and working with he and Lisa on Back Porch Theology. It's truly been one of the honors of my life. And I'm just super honored to be here with you today, DCC, and everyone that's traveled in, kind of pilgrimaged in here today. Um, Jim has kind of let me in on where you guys are that he's invited you to kind of pick up spiritual compasses and spiritual backpacks and take a journey toward building a more beautiful and honoring and lovely house of God, community of faith. And when he told me that, y'all, I knew immediately how I wanted to begin our time together today. If you would do me a favor, would you rewind the movie of your mind back to the year 2000? Now, before I tell the story, I want to ask a question. How many of you had stockpiles of water, Vienna sausages, and five generators in the garage? Anybody? Only three of you? Okay, we did it differently in the South. All right, well, once we got past Y2K and it became apparent that the world as we knew it was not going to fall off a cliff, there was a dear woman in the spring of that year named Cleola Kraut. Isn't that a neat name? It sounds like she belongs in a William Faulkner book. Anyway, this Miss Cleola was 80 years old, and in the spring of 2000, she went home to meet the maker and the lover of her soul. Her celebration of life was held in Pelion, South Carolina, and Pelion is in the sand hills of South Carolina. It's the kind of town that unless you live there or you know someone that lives there, you're kind of speeding down past the blacktop on your way to anywhere else. Anyway, I was at the funeral that day, and immediately I knew something was a little different about this Miss Cleola. Florence Baptist Church was packed stem to stern, side to side. There was standing room only. And you know, very often when an elderly person goes home to meet the Lord, it's just a smattering of friends and families. But three pastors had driven in to eulogize Miss Cleola. And I heard stories about 25 years of faithfully teaching an adult Sunday school class, faithfully serving in VBS, countless meals and visits delivered to the community. You could tell that Miss Cleola had loved well and was truly, truly loved. At the end of the celebration of life, we, we moved over to the little church cemetery. Florence Baptist Church is one of those little churches that have the cemetery right next door. And so we finished putting her body, her earthly coil, into the sand. And as they were moving us toward a crock pot, because you know in the South, every occasion is a good occasion for a crock pot celebration. As we were moving to the fellowship hall, I saw a man that was starting to approach me. And here's what I noticed immediately, you guys. I could tell that this man felt terribly uncomfortable at churchy things and around churchy people, but that he had done everything in his power to fit in. And how I could tell this was that he was arrayed from head to toe in a polyester suit that looked like it had last seen the light of day when staying alive was a number one hit. It also didn't fit him very well. His wrists and his ankles were kind of hanging out, and I, I was touched with such tenderness because, again, I knew he was doing whatever he could to fit in to the community of faith. And as he began to approach me, and I think he approached me because I had sung at Miss Cleola's funeral, I noticed that his hands shook. 
And somehow, I, th I just think it was the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart. I understood that what I was looking at was not Parkinson's disease or any kind of degenerative neuromuscular disease. I knew that what I was looking at were DTs. And I knew immediately that this man in the polyester suit had spent his life being ravaged by addiction. He came close to me and he grabbed my hands. I remember that his hands were bone dry and ice cold on a hot spring South Carolina day and they shook. He pulled me in and he rasped out a secret and this is what he said to me. He said, when nobody would come to me, ma'am, when nobody would come to me, Miss Cleola, she came to me. She came to me when I went through my troubles and my addiction and my divorce. She brought a meal, she sat with me, she held my hand. He said, ma'am, Miss Cleola came to me. Ma'am, your grandmother came to me. And he dropped my hands and he walked away. And to this day, I have never gotten his name. And when I tell that story, y'all, the main character in the spotlight for me is obviously my grandmother, Cleola, who lived a braver life, a bigger life than maybe perhaps small town politics and communities would have expected of her. She lived her life bravely, shining the light of Jesus the Christ anywhere that a door would open for her. But today, I want to talk for a moment about the man in the polyester suit. The man who came to the house of God, I'm sure, against every internal alarm saying, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson. Yet he traveled up to the house of God just to be close enough to the outsized beauty and goodness of God that he had experienced through my grandmother, Cleola. He made the trip. He shook in his proverbial hiking boots, if you will, and he went on pilgrimage up to the house of God, though it probably cost him, in an emotional sense, every penny that he had. There's another group of people in the scripture who are also on pilgrimage physically and spiritually moving up to the house of God. They called themselves the sons of Korah, and they wrote many of the psalms that we love in, in our Bibles, that big old God's hymnal in the middle of the book, those beautiful and evocative and messy songs that were to be sung in worship and to one another in the community of God. The sons of Korah wrote many of those, though we don't often think or hear or talk much about them. And one of their most beautiful, evocative, emotional compositions is indeed about the beautiful house of God. And if you would allow me, if you would be so kind, I don't think I've ever done this when I've spoken, I'm actually going to read over us. Psalm 84, so it's not a super-duper long portion of Scripture, but it's longer than I might normally share. And what I want to ask is, if you feel comfortable, as the birds are chirping above and the beauty of God's creation is in the background and he's been given us this gorgeous weather, I wonder if you just might close your eyes 
and allow God's word to wash over you, to hear the lyrics of this love song in Psalm 84 that the sons of Korah are singing about and over and in the house of the Lord. This is Psalm 84, and it says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. I long and I yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home, and a swallow finds a nest for herself where she places her young right near your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. How happy are those who reside in your house who praise you continually. How happy, how blessed are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca or tears. They make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rains will cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. Lord, God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen. Listen, God of Jacob, consider our shield, God. Look upon the face of your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly with him. Happy is the person who trusts in you, O Lord God Almighty. Friends, it's really, really probable that these very song lyrics were sung aloud as the people of God pilgrimaged up to the house of God for the festivals. They sung them through passages and and steps. They may have even sung them as they approached the temple of God. Maybe even like some of you came down these steps today or hiked in to be with us here today. And what strikes me, y'all, is the love song they sing about the house of God is no child's lullaby. It's no soft ditty. Y'all, Psalm 84 reads like a full-on, full-throated Celine Dion, tear your heart out, power ballad with five key changes and a huge, huge drum solo, a trash can ending, as musician calls it, right at the very end. I kind of think of the song by the proclaimers, I would walk 500 miles and I would what? Walk 500 more just to fall down at your door. That's the heart of what the sons of Karar are trying to express as they talk about the beauty of the house of the Lord. Even John Denver's Rocky Mountain High has nothing on the love song that the sons of Korah are singing about God's house. If I can put it in a little bit of modern lingo, they're saying, your house, O Lord, is more lovely than the Mona Lisa. I long physically, I yearn for your house the way that two teenagers long for the first kiss at the first dance at the first prom. Those that get to dwell in your house, O Lord, they're lucky because they get to move in, they get to bring sofas, and they get to put their pictures up on the wall. Five minutes at your house, Lord, is better than a thousand years at Disneyland with a fast pass. And then they bring it all home by extolling the stunning glory of the Lord who builds and inhabits such a house by saying that no good thing, I know that you've been talking a lot about good things, 
would he withhold from those who walk with him? What a magnificent love song the sons of Korah are singing about God's house. I want to be able to sing along with them. I I think many of us do. Many of us want to join that song, especially if we thought that such a place, physical or spiritual or otherwise, existed for our very wounded and weary hearts. You know, we live in a culture all too often where this is not the song we sing about the experience we have had in God's house. I know that all too well. Some of our songs here today would be sadder. They would be colder. They might even be a little bit angry. Maybe your song as it regards the community of faith has grown silent altogether. Here's the thing I want to share with you, and if you don't get anything else that I'm saying today, and you're in that tender, pained place, hear this. Jesus understands. There were times that the state of his house saddened him too. Whatever song you're singing today, I want you to know that the ultimate singer, Jesus the Christ, he can handle your song. But what I love about Dr. Howard, Jim, yes, what I love about what Dr. Howard is in, oh gosh, all right, let me step up over here. Let me see if I can do it a third time. What I love about, oh, it doesn't feel right. I'm like Fonzie who's like stuttering when he's trying to say I'm sorry. What I love about what Jim has invited us to do today is ask a brave question. What would make DCC, what would make this community, this larger communities, what would make your faith communities as you travel back a good place, a place that beckons to the weary traveler? Well, there are two things, y'all, and we're only going to talk about two things today that I see in Psalm 84 that I believe will help us to pursue and join with the Holy Spirit in what he's doing in building a good house, a wonderful house, a kind house of worship. Two very simple things. I believe Psalm 84 invites us to court contentment and to be a little bird-brained. Court contentment and to be a little bird-brained. The sons of Korah give us some really important clues on how to court contentment when they say these words that I just read to you a few minutes ago. I would rather be a what? Doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, if you've been in Christendom for any amount of time, this is a fairly familiar lyric But really, what in the Sam Hill does it have to do with contentment? Well, if I may, I just want to give you a very, very, very quick backstory about the sons of Korah. Back in the olden days of Israel under Moses, there was something called the tabernacle, which was the house of God. Except this tabernacle moved from place to place as the children of Israel moved from place to place. And so it had to be torn down, very much like what DCC has to do every time they set up for worship by the water or worship on the water. The tabernacle, the house of God, had to be torn down and moved from place to place. Well, Levi, you've probably heard of him a time or two, of the Levites, his sons were assigned with moving the implements of worship from place to place to place. 
There's a lot you can read about this in Numbers 3 and 4, but it's not really germane to what we're talking about today. But one of his sons, Kohath, was charged with the most holy elements, the ark and some of the other things that God said, you don't want to touch that, you don't want to handle that in an inappropriate way. So Kohath and his crew had to physically wrap him up and physically carry the ark and other things from place to place to place. Now, some thinkers think that maybe this is where the seeds of discontent are planted. We can't say for sure, but if I can put on my actor's hat for just a moment and take a pit stop and put myself in the shoes of Kohath and his crew, though I would understand what a holy gift it was to move the holy implements of worship, I wonder if a time or two I might have ever looked at my other brothers and thought, man, I wish I had a cart. Man, I wish I had a cart. And I, as I was resonating on this, or marinating, I should say, rather, in preparation for today, I thought, Allison, how many times have you in the house of God looked at somebody else's calling, somebody else's assignment, somebody else's gift, someone else's place, and thought, I want that Anybody else willing to wave at me? Oh, we've got a lot, lot more than don't like sweet tea, okay? It's a human thing, y'all. It's a human thing in our communities. It's a human thing in our lives. It's a human thing in our spheres. To be tempted to look at other people and go, it just seems so easy. It just seems so much better. I wish I had that. I wish I had the fill in the blank. Here's the thing I've learned the hard way, and I guess the glorious way, after walking with Jesus the Christ for over 30 years. If the Lord allowed me to stand in someone else's place, someone else's calling, someone else's fill in the blank, you know what? There would be no grace for it. The grace of Jesus is with me in whatever Jesus has called me to do in the season and in the moment And so, there is a a call to us to typify contentment and celebration as it relates to our brothers and sisters in the house. One of my very favorite psalm verses is out of Psalm 20, and it says this, y'all. It says, we're going to lift up the banners in the name of our God when you are successful. Listen to that. We lift up our banners, we throw a party when you, sir, in the orange ball cap, win. I'm going to raise my flag up the flagpole and say, look at her, when you, beautiful gal right here on the front row with the blonde hair and the tie-dye shirt, when you win, when you succeed. You see, the culture is absolutely opposite, in opposition to that, because the culture says this, I lift up my banners when who wins? I do. I do. This is the culture that we live in, our Instagram culture, our meme culture, our Facebook culture. When I win, I raise up my banners in the name of my God. When I win, y'all, the kingdom is completely upside down. And how good or how much more good would our communities of faith be, y'all, if we were the kind of people, the Psalm 20 kind of people that says, when you do well in what the Lord has asked you to do, 
man, I'm going to throw a party for you. I'm going to celebrate you. Contentment, y'all. Contentment is a great antidote to comparison and competition. Compassion, celebration, and contentment make great medicines for the things that make our soul so sick, and that's often competition and comparison. All right, well, back to Kohath and his sons. He had a grandson named Korah, and maybe you're starting to connect the dots with me. Years later, Korah and his crew raise a rebellion, and by now there is no doubt that the corrosive effect of discontent, envy, and arrogance, and pride, whatever its original source may have been, have come to full bloom. They go to Moses and Aaron, and they say, you know what? Everybody can take part in the priesthood. In other words, we all want what you have. They challenge them. And then Moses and Aaron basically say, it's not ours to give, it's only God. And then in the way that only the Old Testament can do it, they have a WWF smackdown right there in the desert. (laughs) And God, y'all, is hands down the winner. The earth opens up, and it swallows their tents. Does that sound like anything we read a few moments ago? The tents of wickedness went down into the earth. People lost their lives. Hearts were undoubtedly shredded. And the people of God, y'all, were left singing a dirge. And then our God, as he is always wont to do, began to sing again. Because apparently the scripture tells us that several of the sons of Korah, or Korah, survived They were too young to understand perhaps what had happened to their father. And the next thing we hear about them, y'all, they are doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. They were apparently deeply content with the honor of standing at the threshold. I bet you a million dollars they blessed people coming and going. Maybe under their breath they were humming the words of Psalm 84, I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Oh, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you even that in judgment there is a strain of mercy. You are always moving us to redemption. I'm so content, Lord. I'm so content to stand wherever you would have me stand. I bet their attitude drew them in. As I was marinating in Psalm 84 years ago, I I felt the Lord begin to speak to my own heart. I've never heard the voice of God audibly, but maybe you're like me and you could say sometimes when the Lord speaks, it's louder than mere sound somehow. And he began to speak to me and say, Allison, the heart attitude that you have in the respect of assignment or calling in my house, that attitude will either open doors for people or it will slam them shut in their face. I want to be a door opener. I was at my church a couple of weeks ago, and I asked an usher, a door opener, who keeps the doors by Diaper Alley. We call it that because, you know, all the babies are back there, and sometimes, no matter how hard we try, it smells like a diaper alley, okay? And so Brian, Brian ushers at the door right there, And I knew I was going to be sharing with you on this content. And I walked up to him. He'd been there a long time. And I said, Brian, how many many years have you stood at this place? And I mean, every time anybody comes up, he swings that door wide open. He's got a huge grin on his face. He just welcomes whoever it is in with love and care and kindness. I said, how long have you been doing this? And he said, 12 years. 
12 years, and you'd have thought you had just given him the keys to the world's largest candy store. Why? He was just deeply content. There was no sense of being put in his place or stay there and never move anywhere else. He just had this deep contentment in Christ that as long as the Lord called him to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, he would do it with contentment. And I thought, man, that's a modern-day son of Korah. I bet the sons of Korah, as they wrote the Psalms, always look back to the beginning of the story. I'm sure they remembered to court contentment. I'm sure they thought, I remember when our relatives went after something that they had no grace for. And the crazy thing about contentment, y'all, true gospel-centric, Jesus-rooted contentment is that it's portable. It goes with you into whatever the Lord is asking you to do at whatever time. Because how many of you know when you walk with Jesus, the, the purpose, go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples, preach the gospel, that's always the tonic note but there's lots of different ways that we can do that. The wonderful thing about contentment is you can carry it into any season, any assignment that you are being called to. It's interesting to me that the sons of Korah were eventually elevated musically to leaders of the choir, and yet they still sign their names, the sons, the anonymous sons of Korah, the ones who were left as a testament to God's great mercy, not David, not Asaph, but the sons of Korah who le were left to sing. Well, here's my um, final point for us today. We need to court contentment. I believe the psalm teaches us that. And finally, we need to be a little bit bird-brained. Did you hear the scripture that I read where the psalmist cries out that the, the little birds, the little sparrows get to come in and make a a nest close to the altar of God. Do you remember that? Well, I want you to imagine for just a second with me that you're a rural Israelite. You've walked for days, maybe weeks, to come to worship God. You've gone from strength to strength to appear before God. And you walk up into the city, and man, there it is. You've never seen it before. Maybe you've never seen it close up. It's the temple. It's the house of God. And every single eave and corner is a bird's nest, the holy house of God. And they are allowed to remain. They're so close. They're so intimate. They're so messy. For years, y'all, I thought Psalm 84 was speaking in hyperbolic uh, metaphor, I thought the psalmist was saying, I wish I had some wings because I'm a human and I can't get close enough to your altar, so I wish I were a bird, Lord, so I could be close to you. But here's the thing that historians tell us, is that sometimes when they were pilgrimaging up to the house of the Lord, sorry, I'm rocking with a little bit less oxygen than I normally do, y'all. Moving up to the house of the Lord, sometimes before they would see the house of the Lord, they would hear the house of the Lord. Would y'all close your eyes for just a second? That's what they would hear. That's what they would hear. Now, I don't know about you, but 
Next Sunday, if I rocked into DCC or my own home church and I walked into the sanctuary and in every eve and in every corner and at the altar and at the pulpit and on the microphone and everywhere that I could look, there were little birds, I would have a freak out of a grade A order. Now, I'd be very careful Right? I'd be like, we got to get these things the heck out of Dodge. I'd be really careful with the birds. I don't want the birds to die. But once we removed the birds, the swallows and the sparrows, I would get out my bleach and my broom, and we would clean that thing up. (sighs) Y'all don't miss this. Don't miss it. Next to the most holiest of places in God's house, God says, come in close. Build your nest. Build your messy nest, if need be. Scholars tell us that the birds that are mentioned in Psalm 84 are sparrows and swallows. Sparrows in the scripture represent often insignificance. And swallows represent very often anxiety. They flitted all the time. Here's what I felt the Lord was saying to us today. Got an anxious heart? Feel deeply insignificant, like you're invisible, like you're on the back row? The kindness of our God stuns me because what he says is, Oh, I don't, I don't want you to just come right there. I don't want you to build your nest right there, Allison. I want you to come all the way up and build your nest. Mess and all, anxiety and all, insignificance and all, right here, right close to my heart. It's interesting that they build right next to the altar, and this is where we see Jesus himself in Psalm 84. The altar is where they made sacrifice so that the sins of the people could be atoned and there could be some restoration of relationship between the people and God. Well, the word of God says, y'all, that Jesus himself made one sacrifice for all time. That if we are in Christ, no matter what we have done, no matter how anxious, no matter how messy, no matter how jacked up, The blood of Jesus brings us in close. I don't know where you are today, but I can't move past this moment without saying, like, if you don't, if you didn't get the birds and the unsweet tea and the sons of Korah, please get this. Jesus' arms are open wide. And if you're intrigued by him, if you have questions about him, maybe even if you're angry at him, and you're way backpedaled in your heart, I would just invite you to ask me questions, ask Jim questions. See, I didn't say Dr. Howard. There's, I, did, uh, I was trying to bring it home, y'all. <laughs> ask us questions about this God who invites us to come in close with our insignificance and our anxiety. I'm going to close today by uh, reading a little blog post that I wrote, I think it was eight or nine years ago. And um, we'll see what the Lord does. It says this, it was a hot mess, and for the life of me, I could not figure out why. 
I'm speaking, of course, about my front porch. Every morning I open my home's door to find it strewn with various bits of detritus, chunks of styrofoam, bits of netting, straggly sticks and stalks. By the end of the day, the trash would disappear, which I just chalked up to a good stiff breeze. The mystery continued for days until it dawned upon my toddler adult brain to look up. And there it was, the beginnings of a nest, a really ugly nest. Precariously perched in a small corner, a mama bird was hard at work building a place she might have her young. Her progress was not what one would call pristine or promising. It was certainly not pretty, but she did not stop. And eventually, she made something of a topsy-turvy home in which to lay her eggs. I wondered what in the world would cause a bird to build upon such a small, hidden eve when anywhere else would take so much less work. Our front yard is full of perfectly good trees ready-made for nest building. However, I also saw that our neighborhood was full of mockingbirds, those aggressive birds that will dive bond the head of anything human, avian, or otherwise. Y'all, this robin mama wasn't looking for pretty or easy. She was looking for protected, sturdy, safe. She was looking for close and hidden And she was willing to do the awkward, messy work of creating that kind of home for her chicks. All of this reminds me of the beauty of Psalm 84, where the sons of Korah cry out, even the sparrow has found a home. The swallow has a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord, my King and my God. It strikes me that the bird and the psalmist who wants to be like the bird is desperate to build a nest near to God's altar, close, tucked in, intimate. And it amazes me that Psalm 84 says God welcomes the messy process of his people like the birds, bringing the leftover bits and pieces of who they are strewing the altar with trash because he would rather have us messy and close rather than pristine and far away. Intimacy like nest building is messy, but it is so well worth the mess, especially when what you end up with is a nesting place nearer to God than you could have ever imagined. I've never, ever wanted to be more bird-brained in all my life, in all my life. I hope Psalm 84 has helped you attune your ear to the love song of God's house. But more than that, I hope you can hear the refrain of the song God is singing over you through Jesus right now. Right now, Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior saves you. He will take great delight. Some of you have not felt delighted in, in your lives. You've felt shoved down. You've felt forgotten. 
you've felt denigrated. But here the scripture says he will take great delight in you, in his love. Through the love of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with what? Singing. Song. And so... I pray as you go into the highways and byways of life, as you make your own particular pilgrimages home to a community of faith or just back into your everyday world, you would remember that truly better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. And that Jesus invites you, no matter how messy or hard, to come in close to his heart.